now let's move on to mechanical ventilation part two. First, we're going to start off with the types of mechanical ventilation, particularly their modes and settings. When I talk about setting it all up, we're going to talk about uh, how we're going to give the mechanical breaths, what's going to trigger those breaths, the cycle, PEEP, and pressure support. So all of the patients that we have currently on ventilators, we typically put them in the SIMV type of ventilation. This delivers a set rate. It attempts to synchronize with the patient's effort. The patient's allowed to take their own breaths, and those breaths will be supported. And if they don't take enough breaths, um, they'll get one mandatory breath per cycle delivered. So to show this in a, uh, in a, in a graphic, just look at the patient-initiated mandatory breath as a PIM, and the ventilator-initiated mandatory breath as a VIM. So here you can see if this, if this time frame from here to here is one breath cycle, the patient is allowed to take their breath, which is the patient-initiated mechanical breath, and then they've completed the breath cycle for that breath. If the patient has not initiated the breath and there's been a long period where the machine is going to wait for the patient to take that breath, if they don't take the breath, then the ventilator says, okay, it's time for me to give the breath based on the set rate that we're going to have for this patient. So how does the ventilator know when to take a breath? Well, we can set up a trigger or something that tells the ventilator, hey, the patient is making an effort to take a patient-initiated breath. And we can do that in two different ways. We can set it up by time, so we can tell the ventilator if the patient doesn't take uh, a breath or we want, we want the breath to be triggered by time, we set that time in the ventilator. Or what we most often do is set it by flow. And what happens here is the, best, the patient can actually generate or attempt to generate a breath once it senses the patient's flow of that inhalation then the ventilator will go ahead and support that breath or synchronize its mandatory breaths with those efforts. And it allows the patient to be partially independent of the set breath rate. Here are some common settings for flow sensitivity, known as V-Sense. Um, and then there's some bias flow um, settings here for you as well. Now flow triggering, you have to know that if, you're, if you set the sensitivity too low for a patient, then the patient can actually move into something called auto-cycling. And if you set the sensitivity too high, the patient can actually end up suffocating. So we have to make sure that these flow sensitivities or this flow triggering is set up appropriately. So you wanna know how much to inflate the lungs. Well, in order to inflate the lungs, we have two common methodologies of delivering um, the breath. One is volume limited, the other one is pressure limited. With volume limited, I'm guaranteed to give a tidal volume and I can set up my minute ventilation pretty easily. It reduces the risk of volume trauma, but the disadvantages are that I don't really know or I really can't set the pressure. The patient's at risk for hypoventilation with an air leak. They may generate a higher flow to meet that tidal volume, which can result in higher PIPs or those higher pressures, especially if the lungs start to become more stiff and the patient starts having a decrease in compliance. Pressure limited 
allows us to set the pressure. This allows us to actually set a mean airway pressure that delivers the tidal volume. Now the advantage is, is I can specifically set that pressure, but one disadvantage is you might have variable tidal volumes, especially if someone starts progressing with more and more lung disease and the compliance continues to drop, or vice versa. If someone's, uh, if someone's compliance is improving, you might start getting much larger tidal volumes than you anticipated. The nice thing about pressure-limited ventilation is that it evenly distributes the gas flow, and there's less of an air leak with these types of ventilations. Now, when you want to compare when should I give volume control, when should I give pressure control, well, volume control, typically you're going to set for someone that you know has good lung compliance, someone that generally doesn't have lung disease. Could be someone postoperatively coming out of the operating room, you're waiting for them to recover from anesthesia. We keep these patients on volume control because we know that the risk of lung disease is pretty minimal. You can set the tidal volume again to reduce any type of volume trauma but you have to monitor your peak inspiratory pressures if there's changes in the patient's condition. And with this type of ventilation, there's a higher risk of an air leak. With pressure controlled, we typically use this for patients with, more, with poor lung compliance. So patients with ARDS um, or patients with like bronchiolitis. Here again, we can set the peak inspiratory pressure to reduce barotrauma, but again, we must monitor the tidal volumes as lung compliance and resistance changes. Now, pressure support is, is basically the support that the machine is going to give for the patient's generated breaths or their own breaths. And basically, it allows them to overcome the resistance of the ventilator tubing and all the dead space within the ventilator. It's delivered as a variable deaccelerating flow pattern. One of the more common and newer type of ventilation modes is known as pressure-regulated volume control. PRVC for some ventilators, and for those that use the Puritan Bennett ventilators, it's known as VC+. And essentially, <clears throat> this is kind of the best of both worlds. It's a, pressure, uh, it's a pressure type of setting that allows you to put in a tidal volume. So essentially what the machine is going to do, it's going to give a, a, a certain pressure to meet the tidal volume. And every breath that's given, it tries to give the lowest possible pressure to ensure we're getting that tidal volume for each breath. The advantages is that it provides both volume control and pressure control. It has a decelerating flow pattern to meet the patient's demands. It improves oxygenation. It, is, it, it adjusts inspiratory pressure as, airways, as airway resistance and compliance changes. So in these type of patients, if they become sicker, you have the opportunity to make the to allow the machine to adjust for that up to a certain degree before alarm limits are are, are reached. It does reduce the risk of both volume trauma and barotrauma. Another type of ventilation mode that we'll that you may see from time to time in some centers, you may see them more frequently than in others, is known as APRV, um, but or as airway pressure release ventilation or bi-level ventilation for those with other types of ventilators. And here, what you're doing is you're giving them a high pressure on inspiration. You give them a very long inspiratory time. As you could see here, on this one breath cycle, they have this large inspiratory time for a long period of time, but the patient can actually breathe above that pressure comfortably. 
It is essentially giving them a high level of CPAP. It improves oxygenation due to all that time under the curve, like I mentioned earlier in the last uh, part of the presentation. Um, it is time pressure release, allowing for CO2 removal. So you do have a period here where it does um, give an exhalation, but then it moves right back into that aspiratory phase again for a long period of time. Other modes of ventilation you may see are high frequency oscillation. Here you put a patient on this when they're when they've when the mean airway pressures start to become higher and higher, and you run the risk of someone who has really bad lung compliance and you're worried that you're giving them more and more pressure to deliver the tidal volume and you want to protect their lungs. So with this type of ventilation, there's active inspiration and expiration because you start to give them these little tiny puffs of, of air. You're giving them very a, a ton of little puffs of air. So air moves in and as air is moving in, it's pushing air out of the lungs. Gas is forced into the lungs in an actively drawn out with the use of a piston or a diaphragm. It's definitely used for lung protective measures. It optimizes alveolar recruitment and it's used to improve oxygenation. I will give you one caveat that high frequency oscillation ventilation does not do a very good job or as an efficient job of CO2 removal. The settings you'll find on these type of ventilators are mean airway pressure, delta P, your Hertz, and inspiratory time. Now we'll look at inspiratory time. And here I've put here on, the, on this slide the normal eye times that we'll set on ventilators. You'll notice that there is a difference between newborns and adolescents. And once you hit the adolescent range, it's typically what our adult patients are on. Um, you, you definitely need to allow them to have more time um, for each breath. So for example, newborns, their respiratory rates are much higher meaning that their eye times must be much lower to in order for them to have a good IE ratio. And as you become older, these patients tend to have lower respiratory rates, allowing for a little bit higher eye time. When we look at IE ratio, it's the ratio of inspiration to expiration. Normally, that is a ratio of one to two. So when you look at your time cycle, it's your, your, your um, 60 seconds per minute divided by breaths per minute. Your PEEP is your positive end expiratory time. This opens the dead space regions of the lower lungs uh, in your alveoli to prevent atelectasis. It increases end expiratory lung volumes and improves or reduces the amount of VQ mismatching that you will have. It also reduces any type of right to left intrapulmonary shunting. When we go back to the hysteresis graph here, you'll notice that atelectasis can occur in the lower portion of this um, lower portion of the diagram. So again, the lower your your peep is, the higher the risk of atelectasis that that can occur. And we typically start our peep off at around five, and you know we'll increase that as needed depending on the patient's condition and what's going on with their lungs. Too little peep can reduce lung volume and can reduce oxygenation, resulting in hypoxemia. Too much of it can overexpand the lungs. It can reduce lung compliance. It can increase pulmonary vascular resistance, and it can increase dead space ventilation as well. Our, our physiologic peep, so that's the peep that you and I are walking around with every single day, is somewhere between two to three centimeters of water. 
when we put someone on the ventilator, because of all the dead space and the amount of the size of the tubing and everything, we typically start them off at a PEEP of five. And that's generally an extubatable setting of PEEP. The higher you go up on PEEP, you want to bring that down close to five to six before you extubate a patient from the ventilator. Now let's talk briefly about some non-invasive ventilation strategies. One of the most common nowadays that we're seeing more and more is high-flow nasal cannula. And the beauty of the high-flow nasal cannula is that it provides a higher flow of, of, of gases that go into the nasal pharynx. It warms that up, making it very comfortable for the patient. And it makes the nasal pharynx and the back portion of the oropharynx into a large reservoir which reduces airway resistance, making it much easier for the patient to breathe. And for smaller patients, it may even provide some degree of positive pressure or continuous positive airway pressure. In infants, we typically, in young children, we typically start off from one to eight liters per minute, and we can go up to about 20 liters per minute for our smaller patients. For our bigger children and our adolescents, well, we can go as high as 60 liters per minute um, to utilize the benefits of high-flow nasal cannula. Now let's talk a little bit about continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP. Now this is delivered in a various uh, types of, um, of modalities. You can use nasal prongs, a nasal mask, also known as a nasal pillow, or a full mask. And it provides a continuous pressure throughout the respiratory cycle. Um, so this way it makes it easy to open up and distend open those airways that might be collapsing, such as patients that have alveolar atelectasis. It helps increase their FRC and it provides distension to overcome those obstructions. Bilevel positive airway pressure provides two levels of pressure. It too also can be delivered via nasal prongs, a nasal mask, or a full mask. It provides an inspiratory positive airway pressure and an expiratory positive airway pressure. So you get a pressure at both the peak or to help with inspiration and also at the end of expiration to prevent alveolar collapse. It is triggered by the patient's effort and it offers more support than CPAP. As of note, make sure that if you're going to give a backup rate, you want to make sure that the patient's in a spontaneous timed mode um, which will allow you to give a little bit of a rate to help support that airway um, pressure. Things to remember about CPAP and BiPAP, you need a good fitting device. So if you're going to put on a face mask or the nasal pillows or the nasal mask, it has to be, it has to provide a good seal in order to give that good pressure. You also need to keep the patient comfortable and calm. If they're fighting the mask or if they're crying the entire time, you may have difficulty using this modality to improve the patient's condition. You also want to watch out for some, some things that can harm the patient, such as skin breakdown around the mask, eye irritation if the mask isn't properly fitting, and of course, we always have to worry about gastric distension and then vomiting, especially if they're swallowing a lot of air um, with this treatment. All right, let's move on to the last section, where our indications for ventil now let's move on to the last one and we'll look at um, ways to adjust the ventilator and what indications we may need um, to do so. So in patients with ARDS, um, they have characteristics of decreased FRC, poor lung compliance, diffused subsegmental atelectasis, and inadequate oxygenation. 
In 2000, the New England Journal of Medicine published an article by the ARDS network that found safe ventilatory strategies to help prevent lung injury to patients with ARDS include low tidal volumes, six to eight cc's per kilo. You wanna put them in pressure limited ventilation. You wanna make sure that their plateau pressures are less than 35 centimeters of water. You can find your plateau pressure by doing an inspiratory hold maneuver on the ventilator. This, you also wanna allow for permissive hypercapnia. And then with permissive hypercapnia, you, you will allow their CO2 to be slightly higher on the blood gas so that you're not overshooting the treatment strategies and just allow the patient to improve through the therapies that you're providing. When you have an asthmatic, the rule is always do everything you can to not intubate these patients. Oftentimes we will put them on positive pressure, um, non-invasive ventilation such as BiPAP or CPAP, but the issue that asthmatics have is not that they can't get air in, it's the fact that they can't get air out due to all the mucus trapping in the lower airways. They have an increased airways resistance, they have air trapping, and they do this. They do a maneuver known as auto-peeping because they're trapping all this air into the alveoli. They become air hungry because they're unable to let out their CO2 and it's unfavorable uh, breathing pattern. The mucus plugging is an issue, hyperventilation is an issue, and then of course you have the poor CO2 compliance. So for these patients, they often become hyperinflated. And what happens is the lung becomes overdistended. And, we and it's very difficult at times to ventilate these patients. So what is our goal? Our goal is allow air to exit. So oftentimes we'll avoid higher pressures and we'll wanna keep their pressures lower. We'll give lower tidal volumes, longer expiratory time to allow for more of that CO2 to be released and allow for spontaneous ventilation, making them, giving them the opportunity to breathe more on their own and support modes would be ideal for this. We also will do a maneuver on the ventilator known as an expiratory hold. And this will give us an indication of what the patient's intrinsic PEEP is. So for example, if we do an expiratory hold and it comes up with the PEEP of seven, then we might wanna match the ventilator PEEP to that number to just distend open the airways, not to over distend them or to apply too much pressure, preventing them from opening the up because of the mucus plugging. Another problem that patients with asthma have when they're intubated is a condition known as auto peeping, which means they're keeping air residual PEEP in the alveolar space because of the plugging. On this graphic here, you will see a normal breath going up, inspiration, exhalation, right? And then the patient's, and, or there's an initiation of the next breath, and you come back to baseline before the next breath actually starts. Now, when we look at the second breath, we have the same pattern on inspiration, exhalation, and then there's this generation of breath. But before we get back to baseline, this patient is still holding on to a little bit of residual peep before they take their next breath. And when we start to see this auto peeping, we have to adjust the ventilator to prevent this from happening um, so that we don't cause atelectotrauma to the alveoli. And with um, auto peep, we do wanna do that expiratory pause or expiratory hold, find the patient's intrinsic peep 
and then we can adjust the ventilator to give them about equal uh, peep from the ventilator to help those airways stay open so that we get good gas exchange. All right, that's it. That's the end for this presentation. I hope you have a great week.